0: A college professor turned globe-trotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show.
1: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 130th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is, how do you know that you're not the jerk at work? I'm joined by Tessa West. She is the author of Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers and What to Do About Them. The publisher is Portfolio Penguin. Tessa is an associate professor of psychology at New York University. She has published over 60 articles in psychology's most prestigious journals and has received multiple grants, including from the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health. She also writes regularly about her research in the Wall Street Journal. Welcome to the show, Tessa.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Absolutely. So let's plunge in. Uh, what's a brief overview of the book?
0: So the book is really broken down into the different types of difficult people that you might encounter in the workplace, and uh, sticking with the theme of this podcast, that could also include you. So each chapter is really dedicated to a different type of jerk at work or difficult person, and what I try to do is give you science-based advice on how you can handle these issues. You know everything from how you can utilize the people around you. Uh, you know how to develop role models, how to develop social connections with others, to how you can have healthy conflict in the workplace.
1: Okay, fair enough. I must say, by the way, uh, it's a wonderful book and it has a wonderful cover because most business books do not. And yet here you've got what I call the claw, the the staple remover, uh, as the image on the front cover. A brilliant stroke. Was that yours or the book designer's?
0: That was the book designer's. We had a push pin at one point. It was too sharp. (laughs) So
1: we decided
0: (laughs) to go with the mean-looking staple remover.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, I think it's a a wonderful addition to the book. So uh, kudos to the designer for that. So let's uh, plunge through. I think we have an obvious uh, structure for this interview because we have the seven chapters based on the seven types of jerks. So the first one, just to kick it off, is the kiss up and kick down. Uh, tell me a bit about it and the solution. And I have an emotional angle in each case I'm interested in pursuing. You mentioned one point these people tend to be condescending, which makes me think that the emotion of contempt is in play here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the kiss-up downer is a real uh, clever type of jerk at work. They tend to be very Machiavellian, so they'll do whatever it takes to get ahead. And they tend to be very talented at work. So these are the types of folks who know how to make the boss happy. They know how to climb up the ladder. They know how to say the right things to the right people. And they really reserve their punishment for the people who work alongside them, sometimes underneath them, people who report to them. So they're very tough to deal with because everyone in charge really loves them. And so, you know, solution-wise, you have to figure out strategies of how you can get your boss or who's in charge to really listen, to really care and be invested in in making that change to address the issue. And I think one of the main things I talk about in this chapter is how you can form allies, Um, often people who are at arm's length, who aren't emotionally invested in the problem, who can tell you who else has been victimized and, you know, how broad the problem is, how widespread it is. This will really help you then kind of develop a case, find other victims, so that when you do go to the boss, the problem seems much more widespread. It's just less about you versus them and more about a real systematic kind of culture issue going on in the workplace.
1: Okay. Yeah. You've documented the patterns, the problem, and and ideally what to be done about it, which is make Machiavelli move move sideways and out of your frame of reference. Um, The second one also is someone you refer to as being an opportunist, and these are the credit stealers Uh, I know emotionally, one key here is that they betray trust. I don't know if you have more to say on the emotional dynamics, but tell us a bit about credit stealers and and how to take them on.
0: I think credit stealers are tough. I think most of them will actually give you credit for things that you may have done or not have done. um, In an effort to actually, a lot like the first chapter, a lot like those kiss up, kick downers, will help them gain the trust and the respect of people in power. So these are the folks that will take credit for your ideas, your hard work, often what we call invisible labor. And I think violating that trust is something that people really struggle with. Most credit stealers are not our enemies. They are our friends. They are our allies and often even our own bosses. And I think because of that, just really kind of dealing with that lack of trust, dealing with that, what feels often as a betrayal is the first step that folks have to take um, when addressing this problem at work.
1: Okay. Uh, moving straight on to the bulldozers. You mentioned that they don't tend to compromise, which makes sense given their name. Uh, seems to me this brings up issues of control. Uh, usually control can involve rage or anger because anger is an emotion. It's about wanting to control your circumstances and make progress uh, under your own terms. Uh, what more can you say to us about bulldozers?
0: Yeah, I think most of us kind of encounter two types of bulldozers, so the in-the-moment bulldozers, the people who talk over you, who suck up all the oxygen in the room, and they are interested in control kind of in-the-moment right now. And there's, there's the ones that are a little bit more tricksy. They're the ones who've had power, you know, maybe they lost it, maybe they still have it, and they actually know how to go behind the scenes to pull levers of power to get what they want. They're the types of people who will go to people two or three levels above you and say, you know, we had a conversation in that room, but I don't feel like it was fair or it didn't seem like we really came to a consensus. So they'll question the process through which decisions are made and that really makes people in power nervous. And through that, they're able to actually overturn decisions or at least buy themselves some time so they can then go to door-to-door and exert more of that control one-on-one.
1: Okay, so they, they can be smooth or rough bulldozers, I guess is what I'm hearing. <laughs> yep. Okay. Uh, free riders. I, I give it... Based on my sense of your personality, you would not abide free riders too happily. Uh, you like to make progress. so um, they seem to have this uh, lack of shame for one thing. they are time thieves, as you say, slackers. Uh, whats uh, What more can you tell us about their their uh, hideous implications for the workplace and uh, how to solve the problem they? pose?
0: Yeah, I think all of us are familiar with this. It's the most common type of, uh, you know, interpersonal behavior in teams. So these are the folks that say they'll do things and they never follow through. A lot of them have very bad foresight. They're unable to actually see what uh, struggles are going to anticipate in the future. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, they're really actually great at distributing their work evenly among other people so that no one person feels the burn. And I would add to that that the really good ones are actually quite charismatic and well-liked. They're fun to be around. They know all all the best office gossip, um, and we they have no sense of shame, but we also feel shame when we confront them because we often like them, and it's a very uncomfortable sure. experience to tell these folks, hey, you're not actually doing what you said you would do.
1: Yeah, no, when I was reading that chapter, it reminded me very much of a guy named Bob. I worked in the uh, director's office at the New Jersey Division of Consumer Affairs, and Bob was very fun and good gossip and a great person to go to lunch with. But if you gave any document to Bob, it disappeared into the swamp that was called his desk, and (laughs) and nothing ever emerged from the swamp. Uh, Next, we got the micromanagers. Uh, This, again, seems to be an issue of contempt in part uh, because they don't respect other people's space and time, but you also mentioned. I was intrigued by this, that deep down, really the issue emotionally for them is often that they are afraid. Uh, Can you uh, expound on that?
0: Yeah, I think fear and anxiety are the two emotions that I most strongly associate with micromanagers. So a lot of them actually have you know, very little training in how to manage. They got promoted because they were good at their old job, which is probably your job now. And many of them are not getting good instructions from the top on how to actually manage. And so in an effort to gain that control back when they're feeling anxious, they will often micromanage. Um, it's a way of actually kind of dealing with their own anxiety, dealing with their own fear of failure. Um, so I I think for all the types of jerks at work I talk about, they're the ones where you really can't take it too personally, um, because it's really coming from emotions that have nothing to do with you. It's coming from how they're being managed themselves, and that's not always the case. Some just are dispositionally micromanaging um, by nature, but many of them are doing it for a feel of their fear of their own failure.
1: Sure. And that made sense to me because uh, you mentioned a few times academia, including at NYU and situations you encounter. I remember when I was uh, going through the so-called TA training at Rutgers University, there, there was no real training. It was very uh, polemical, very high theory, yep. no practicalities, and none of us were really prepared to be in the classroom. Uh, so I could relate to what you were saying there. Uh, the neglectful, uh, this is the person who's often burnt out, not in the loop. Uh, You mentioned a kind of fun phrase, need nudging. What is need nudging and who are these people?
0: Yeah, I think neglectful bosses often are micromanagers too. They're kind of two sides of the same coin. So, you know, they go in between these two states of micromanaging and then getting overwhelmed and neglecting. I think a lot of us, when we have a neglectful boss, a person who promises and they don't deliver or they just plain disappear entirely, our intuition is to try to, you know, act like there's a a world on fire that they need to attend to. Send emails with all caps to say things like urgent, must read those types of things actually send them into a further panic. The better way to do it is through need nudging. It's by asking them to do small little things for you, like a five-minute meeting instead of a 30-minute one, and then kind of accompanying that strategy by actually offering to offload some of their work in ways that can help your career, like maybe some mentoring for the people that they don't have time to see, You know, helping fill in the gaps a little bit for these folks. So kind of leaning in and offering to help while nudging them in a, in a subtle way that isn't going to just make them want to withdraw even more. The minute someone feels overwhelmed at work and a crisis comes to them, what they really want to do is shut down and ignore you. So need nudging is an alternative to to what most of us naturally want to do in that situation.
1: Okay. And I do remember one really specific suggestion you also had along those lines, which is if these people could have a meeting with staff early in the year when the priorities and goals are getting established that uh, your research had found or other people's research perhaps had found that that was particularly uh, constructive to making sure the year wasn't a waste. So yeah, I, I think I like a
0: lot of these neglectful bosses are very bad at planning ahead, and I think that research shows that just simply meeting ahead of time and coming up with a, a really clear structure and system of what is what people are going to do and when, and planning out what that hierarchy is going to look like, it, you know, what those roles are at work, make sure there's clarity among those roles, that you don't have mission creep, things like that, can actually do a ton. And doing it earlier and not doing it on the back end after an emergency has happened can really help the neglectful boss um, actually manage their time a lot better.
1: Okay, so we got one more left. This is the gaslighters. Before we get there, I want to ask: um, Did it come last because it's the most odious? Does it somehow complete a a hidden pattern of how you were building up to this one? Uh, why why the order that you had for the the seven categories, and why gaslighters as the as the the summit of the peak?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think gaslighting is its own its own category of bad. I think the other types of jerk at work are all variations of what most of us are used to seeing. And I almost see this person as kind of categorically different, um, You know, much more clinical in nature. So these are folks who don't just lie and deceive, but they actually plan their lies in a way to create an alternative reality for people. And they, the signature move for the gaslighter is actually cutting people off socially. So lots of people lie at work, lots of people are dishonest, but gaslighting requires you to also isolate your victims so they can't fact check you. In fact, they're not even interested in fact checking you. And I think what goes on with these victims is they feel very afraid to speak out or they simply learn to believe their gaslighter. And many of these gaslighters, they don't torture people. They don't insult your self-esteem. They don't tell you you're going to get fired. I mean, some do, but many others actually make you feel like you're part of something special. And that special thing you're doing needs to be hidden from other people. So for that reason, I kind of left them as last. Like, okay, we got through the people we can handle. Now let's talk about the really, really hard one. You ready to go? You made it this far? We can do this, you know, leading with them, I think would scare everybody from reading the rest of the
1: chapters. Okay, so we're on to, in this case, the categorically evil almost, if I might use that (laughs) word.
0: Yeah, they got some
1: issues. <laughs> they got some issues. Well, I've also found it interesting that you the, – the very first one we started up with was the kiss-up kick down, and they were condescending to their victims. And again, in this case, you mentioned a loathing for victims. So it seems to me like the circle closed in some ways with contempt first and an even more odious version of contempt Last in the cycle.
0: Yeah, it's a bit of like a you know meanie sandwich, if you will. <laughs> My instinct is always to talk about the the people who have intent behind what they're doing, and I think the kiss up, kick down, and the gaslighter are they really have the most intent to cause harm out of all the other types of difficult people. Ah. The other people are actually just kind of much more products of their situation. I mean, not entirely, but their behavior is driven by behaviors of others and by the context and the culture within they work. And I think because because of that, we can all really relate to seeing ourselves in those other types of jerks, whereas kiss-up, kick-downing, that, that really requires you to decide one day you're going to wake up and do these things to people, and I think the same is true for the gaslighter.
1: Would it therefore also be true that those two with that intent to do harm are the ones that you personally uh, have disliked the most in your career and exposure, or is there a third one here that you have some particular animus toward?
0: Yeah, definitely the first two really shaped me the most. I think early on, um, you know, in my working life, I encountered a kiss-out kick-downer when I was, you know, still in high school selling shoes. Um, And that person, and early on in college, that person really taught me about what the workplace really is and how you can really get away with some pretty terrible things if the people in power still like you. So I think, you know, maybe the way I've organized this is more a, a bit of a developmental kind of experience in my own career and dealing with these folks. But you know, later on in my career, much later, say the last like six, seven years is when I encounter my first gaslighter and not as a victim, but as someone who was helping another victim and structurally dealing with this person at work, um, trying to create new rules and policies to protect potential victims. Um, so I was coming at that one from a a very different place in my career, less green, you know, less kind of naive about how things work, but I was in a position of power where I had to really handle this person in a way that I had never had to really deal with any of the other types before.
1: Sure, and these people don't go away, and that includes by setting. I'm sure we both know the wonderful quote from Henry Kissinger that the reason the turf battles are so intense in academia is because the stakes are so low.
0: Which, which... we fight over everything because we have nothing. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I, I had a friend at the University of Chicago. She couldn't even put together a dissertation committee because there weren't three people in the Spanish department who were on speaking terms with each other. So she she grabbed two from there and one from Notre Dame to make her way through.
0: Yeah, the University um, of Chicago is where fun goes to die. So. So that makes sense.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> so I wanted to go to another angle here, which is, you know, we're, a lot of this conversation has been around about managers and the employees and the big bosses are kind of, well, the people you're sucking up to or playing to, but they're kind of a bit out of the picture. My interesting part is because so often the executives, to my mind and from my experience in my own career do not get involved with these issues, and yet their payrolls are biggest expense as a company that they're running. Why is it from your vantage point that the executives don't get involved more and and so many of these jerks at work are allowed to, if not um, flourish, at least to survive?
0: Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think so. To start, um, executives don't get involved in problems that don't involve general counsel, they don't involve HR, they don't involve legal <laughs> issues, right? And yeah. they, they're, they're busy, a lot of their decisions are high level. But we know what really makes people leave and what, what actually counts for turnover are these low level daily things, right? There's not that many of these issues that I cover in this book that ever make it to HR. So, executives aren't thinking about the low level complaints. They do kind of see it cumulatively when they have a lot of turnover at work, when there's a lot of culture clashes at work over issues like this. And I think in the last two years, we're seeing this in the zeitgeist a lot more talking about, you know, well-being and employee rights and these kinds of things. So they are perking up a little bit. They are paying more attention to these things, but it just doesn't land on their desk, so to speak. Um, You know, and I think for that reason, Plus, a lot of these types are actually quite productive at work. So it's not even just that they have a reason to ignore them, they're busy, but people like the Kiss Up, Kick Downer tend to be very good at work. Bulldozers are wheelers and dealers. You know, They don't really care if a team gets a job done if someone wants more credit than another person, if the incentive structure is at the level of the team. So financial bottom line are often not affected by these people. And a lot of these people actually can improve, you know, Workplace outcomes like performance, like how much money people made. So, you know, if you have a micromanager who manages to stress everybody out, but at the end of the day, they do perfect work, great. Let's promote that micromanager because what the boss sees is, you know, what that output looks like. What, you know, they have to start paying attention to the turnover, but low levels of these things can often actually look like good, healthy practices in the workplace.
1: Okay. And just taking it one step further to complete this part of the conversation, um, on LinkedIn, I've increasingly seen people who are labeled uh, titles like, you know, a chief people officer, for instance. Yep. Does that mean that those folks are a bit more conversant with these issues and step in more than obviously a CFO, for instance, might?
0: Yeah, I'm pretty cynical about the invention of these new titles, um, these new C-suite titles that involve like soft skills to the extent that they actually have training in this and that the company isn't just slapping a title on someone to make it look like they're helping. Um, There's a lot of symbolic stuff in this space right now. Chief people officer, chief well-being officer, you know, you see a lot of this stuff thrown around and people like fancy titles. It's how we can lure in top talent give them that, that C-suite title. So you really need to kind of back it up with actual structural change, um, procedures that are fair and clear, and you know decision-making rules that are applied equally to everyone in the organization, and everyone kind of knows what they're getting. So until that happens, we still know that big decisions are made in small rooms. And until we have clarity that trickles down, I tend to be pretty, pretty cynical about this. And the symbolic piece is a huge thing happening right now. So put your money where your mouth is if you want to hire that person pay them a lot of money and, you know, make sure they have the resources um, to actually do the job that they need to do.
1: Okay. And the last question, I don't always get around to this one, but you're clearly a case of uh, Rolling Stone gathers no moss. So what are you at work on next, which is probably uh, a multi-part answer, but briefly, what what's uh, most obsessing you these days?
0: Yeah. So I'm writing my next book. It's on changing jobs, changing careers. And I'm doing a lot of uh, deep dive interviews with people on the hiring side of things, you know, talent acquisition folks, recruiters, as well as people who are looking for jobs and really just documenting how many communication differences and how many misconceptions are on that world. Um, So that's been a fascinating project, um, which is going to come out in the next couple of years, along with just running my research lab at NYU.
1: Sure. Okay. Well, I want to thank you so much, Tessa. Our time is up. This has been episode 130, the title, How Do You Know That You're Not the Jerk at Work? Tessa is the author of Jerks at Work, Toxic Coworkers and What to Do About Them. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with what I consider to be a potentially appropriate epigram. In this case, Marianne Williamson is running for president yet again, and I came across the fact that she had made this following statement. The daughters of God don't break for jerks. Until next time, take care and be well.